Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, not quite sure when this will be out, but I'm really excited to have today's guest. Um, and I don't think that our conversation is going to be something that's pegged to the news. It's going to be much more interesting than that. So uh, look out. I don't know if you're listening to the episode, so obviously you have to look out for it. But today's guest is uh, Asad Hader. He is the author of the book Mistaken Identity, which was published by Verso. He's also a founding ed- editor of Viewpoint Magazine, an investigative journal of contemporary politics. Hey, Asad, what's up? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've wanted to have you on the show for a while now because, uh, you know, we've talked in the past and, um, you know, I was very interested in the book when it came out. Um, and uh, I just wanted to start by talking about the book a bit. And, you know, I think this will just be sort of a conversation between the two of us. So I don't think of it as like a interrogation or an interview or anything like that. But, um, you know, the, the book opens and it's about the opening to your book, the forward to your book, which I found, you know, quite moving. It's about this evolution in your thinking about identity. And, the you know, the book is about identity politics in some ways, but it's not entirely about that. So um, you, you start out with this sort of confusion or detailing this confusion that's very relatable to me, at least, as like a fellow immigrant or, you know, child of immigrants. And it's about like, uh, you know, you're sort of stuck between worlds. You have these squishy thoughts about like, well, who am I? But you don't really think about that either. You're just like, well, I'm a little different than the other people. And, uh, you know, there are these other things that are happening, like customs that are have cultural traditions and stuff like that, that I've observed. And maybe that's who I am. Then for you, right, there's this sort of break that happens um, when 9-11 happens. So can you can you just tell us a little bit about that? I mean, you know, it was you always had that experience of being suspended between worlds. And, um, you know, you can experience that as uh, something that's really troubling, something that's alienating. You could potentially experience it as something that's liberating, uh, probably People like you and me go back and forth uh, every day about that. But, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, with with 9-11, suddenly there, something else got attached to it, which was that there was, you know, while the identity appeared to be in flux, you know, appeared to be changing, uh, never really stable, there was this fixing of it by the politics of the situation and by the fact that um, suddenly... Having a Muslim name, having skin color that I did, even though, you know, this is like a very reductive way of looking at skin color. Uh, But but that all, you know, it makes you uh, a kind of internal enemy. Uh, That's uh, often uh, how I felt in, in those days, which wasn't necessarily the case before, because before it was like, you know, I told people where I was from, Pakistan, you know, they haven't heard of it you know, in rural Pennsylvania, people didn't know. And then now they know because it's the base from which the U.S. military is doing this war, you know, uh, uh, the war on terror. So uh, that changed a lot. It was, was it something that you consciously thought about? Because you know, I, was, I was thinking about this moment with, uh, you know, with, with East Asians, for example, and the coronavirus, right, where I think that, I don't think that it will be, um, and you're seeing some of the, you know, violence that's been happening around that. And I wonder with like kids who are 14, 15 or however, or even eight years old right now, um, 
if that sort of, you know, oh, you know, the, the beginning, at the beginning, your like sort of sense of identity and like your, your complaints about it almost seem like quaint, right? Like you're like, oh, they don't understand my lunch or like, you know, why do I have to change my name? And you've seen some of this going around social media, this sort of like soft identity stuff. Um, and then, and then something happens and then you're totally defined by that. Like how, how old were you when, um, when all this happened? I was 14. And like, was it something that you, that you like sort of understood was happening at the time? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a moment at which I sort of got interested in politics, um, you know, in a much more serious way. I, I remember at the time, uh, tracking down, I think you could order these VHS tapes of Noam Chomsky speaking uh, and you know, I was like, I was like <laughs> and you could get like, like yeah, like cassette tapes and VHS tapes and stuff. We would like, I would get it. We would listen. I think, I think you could download also things at the time, like a real audio file. You know, sure. yeah. yeah. So we yeah. listened to, you know, my family listened to those, and uh, so that yeah, that at, at that point that sort of got me interested in not just thinking about this in terms of my own identity or experience, but kind of that was the jumping off point to think about this way bigger thing, which is, you know, I mean, just learning about um, American foreign policy, learning about imperialism and thinking of it as a global thing, because then, you know, you, you look into this stuff uh, when you, if you read critical stuff, uh, about the situation after 9-11, putting it in context, you know, putting terrorism in con the idea of terrorism in con what is terrorism? Do, you know, states commit terrorism? You know, we United States commits terrorism. So that's, right. where did it do that? It did that in Latin America. It did that all over the world. So you don't just think about it in terms of, oh, well, this country that my parents are from, that became like, there are problems there, but it, it, it's it's a whole global problem, and so you you know you start to you go from this identity thing, you you go to the world. That's that's an interesting shift to make. Right, but it it seems also like somewhat of an abnormal response, you know, just listening to you, <laughs> just be like, well, nine eleven happened. This, you know, I felt implicated because of you know my last name and and color of my skin, and so what I did was I ordered some audio tapes of Noam Chomsky <laughs> like what's what's the what was the thinking there yeah I don't know I mean uh so I guess some of us uh were just cursed for life to, <laughs> to you know you just you just come into the world cursed <laughs> to 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 get into this stuff and to you know it, it, it would be so much easier to abandon the convictions, <laughs> you know, <laughs> especially, you know, like, I mean, we'll get into it, it's like, the stuff that I wrote my book about, when you, when politics gets inverted into something that's no longer um, anything about improving the state of the world and improving the lives of people, but it's about people undercutting each other and undermining each other and, and, and all of that. And that, those are moments in which you think, really, it would be better if I did not believe that it was worth changing the world, or I did not, uh, I did not have principles of this kind. But then you're just cursed. It's like, 
that's just cursed to deal with. Yeah. You can participate in like the endless media battles of, of uh, you know, trying to litigate personal, like uh, industry norms through like, uh, you know, somewhat removed politics or something like that, which seems to be 90% of what people talk about at this point. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I don't, I like there's, I, I just want to introduce you to the listeners a little bit through that, but you know, I think that what your book about is it's not about you, right? Like in, in some ways it is, but it is, you know, it's a serious argument that you're putting forth a polemic. And, um, you know, uh, I, I feel like sometimes when, especially with people, you know, like, like you or I who are like identified by as like POC or whatever, right. That, that a lot of times it does get pathologized in that sort of way, right? It's like, well, what happened in that person's life to make them feel this way? And I don't think that that is necessarily fair. I always resist it when it happens to me, and so like, I don't want to. I don't want to do that to you. So like, um, you know, the the book itself it starts with this moment, right? And I think that you know it's interesting because since this, since you wrote this book, this moment has become much more talked about, right? The Combahee River Collective and mm. sort of the foundation of identity politics. Um, Barbara Smith, and you know, it's interesting because it, there's a there's so much mischaracterization of what this is, right? And um, Barbara Smith has, I think, her presence on Twitter is basically just to correct people, you know, right. which must be exhausting for her. But it's, she's just like, this is not what we meant. This is not what we meant. Right. We actually put out a manifesto which clearly right. states what we meant. But you know, none of this seems to matter. Um, and uh, yeah, like, why did you start your book with this moment? Well, I mean, th that's there's there are a lot of ways that that has been interpreted, and so I'll first say why you know what I don't think about mm -hmm. this, which is um, I it's not like um, a, a fall from Eden kind of thing. It's not about like once you know there were these great ideas and people were doing the right thing, and you know now we've made mistakes and we need to go back to that. I don't think the world works that way. History doesn't work that way. Uh, it's not to say that these people put this term out there, and so what they think it means is what it means, and you have to go. You, you have to stick right. to it. That's not how language works. <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah. no, it's, we don't. We don't decide what words are going to mean. Um, so that's not. So so some people say that, but that's not. Neither of those is my point. It's not about. You know, there's a good and bad identity politics. It's not about the original identity, whatever. The point is, it's actually, you know, consistent with what I'm saying, is that terms have histories and ideas have histories. And so if we want to understand um, some term that is, it's not just, it's not just that the term is a name for something that just exists in reality or exists in our behaviors. It's a term that does something, when you use the term, you're making a specific kind of intervention. It's going to be different depending on who's using it and how. But if you say in, you know, for example, in, in, the, in the previous election, if you said, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't care about identity politics, it wasn't so much that you were presenting a theory of identity or something like that. It was that you were trying to do something. You wanted right. to do something politically. So when you have words like that, we want to figure out what is the history. And uh, if we look at that history without already assuming we know what these things mean, what will we learn? So that's an interesting thing to do. So I, I always do this. When you, when you have terms you want to understand, 
look at the history, look at the etymology, and um, the, the, the term identity politics is pretty much invented by the Cambria River Collective. So, you know, you may find it, you may find these two words put together here and there randomly before, but presented as a specific idea, it's in this uh, statement. And um, so that's the, that's the point where we see it emerge, and then it changes radically over the course of the next, you know, three decades, uh, what, four decades? Four decades? Oh my God! Four decades. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, what's the history of the? And I, 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 I didn't fill in a lot of the gaps. I've written about this since. Uh, but the, you know, we could do the history of the word, but we can also do like what is the history of the people who advanced the term? What's the political history that they were a part of that has continued since? And so. You learn very interesting things when you do that. So you learn, for example, that the people who advanced this term didn't see an opposition between socialism or ideas of class politics and feminism or anti-racist politics. You know, that's a liberal idea is that these are all, you know, these are separate things. And if you talk about class, that means you don't care about race and gender, etc. You know, they, they were clearly saying that if you have a class politics that doesn't care about race and gender, then that's a problem because, you know, you're not talking about everybody who makes up the working class, who they all have different uh, uh, traits and characteristics. Um, but at the same time, if you don't have uh, politics of class, if you don't have a socialist politics, you're not going to do anything effective uh, at dealing with the problems that are encountered by most people of color, by most women, by most people of other gender identities, and so on. Uh, and that was clear to them. So it's interesting, first of all, to note that this opposition wasn't there from the beginning. And that opposition is taken for granted now among many people who use this term. What changed? Why did it become... Yeah, yeah, why no, did that's it what I was going to ask. Like, what, yeah. what, what, why, when did it become sort of, you know... Uh, term to be used, you know, about, uh, you know, who wins Oscars, for example, or, you know, who can advance in the workplace or, um, you know, sort of diversity politics, you know, diversity, uh, DEI type politics. Like, when, when does that start happening? This is a process. And I, I give the political history in my book, which is right. uh, about, okay, so... Combahee River Collective is coming out of these social movements, mass social movements from the 60s and 70s. They're reflecting on their situation they're facing at the end of the 70s. And what's happening is the demobilization of mass movements and the uh, entry of, because of the achievements of the mass movements, the entry of uh, previously excluded people into the political structure that exists. You know, you got all the you got a lot of black politicians being elected, black mayors from starting the '60s. You know, women are more able to enter the workplace, more able to enter into politics, and that has become possible at the same time that these mass movements are demobilizing, both because of the uh, kinds of strategic and organizational limits they came up against internally, and because conditions of 
uh, economic crisis, the rise of the right, is really um, uh, shifting the political field. So it's that demobilization um, that is very important, and the way that as these uh, as previously excluded groups are able to enter into the existing state, the existing ruling class at a much larger scale, they can use the language of identity to invent a solidarity with people who they no longer represent. It may be that, you know, I talk about particular cases, uh, you know, uh, Newark, other places, well, you know, there are mass movements that get a black mayor into office. That mayor implements austerity programs. They're, they're totally harmful for the base, the grassroots base, that made it possible for them to be there. Uh, but they can use this language of racial solidarity to make it as though there isn't a contradiction, there isn't a difference between their interests and the interests of uh, the, the, the majority of working people in the city. And uh, so that's, that, that's the history I traced there. I, I could do another history of the word, of, of the words, identity politics, and that's a weirder history, you know, because it goes into the academy, basically. Uh, and it's like identity politics is like a really problematic term in the academy because especially in what at the time was called like gay and lesbian theory now we call it queer theory uh, a lot of feminist theory and so on it was like identity politics is a risky thing because um, we need to deal with these categories that uh, are constitutive of our identities but when we turn them into foundations for politics we end up reducing the complexity of what every person is into some fixed thing. That's the problem with identity. You know, you reduce, like what we were talking about earlier, uh, children of immigrants suspended between cultures, there's something there that's not reducible to one thing or the other. And the right. thing is, that's actually true of everybody, you know? It's not it, like we, we just had to recognize it because the situation forced us to, but it's true of everyone. You can't reduce them to one thing. And uh, so in this like academic, theoretical kind of stuff, they saw this identity politics as a, a problem, a question. And then because of these debates about political correctness, multiculturalism, all of this that comes, you know, with out of the Reagan era, you know, it becomes a huge debate in the 90s. Uh, that turns these kinds of what seem to be very insular academic discussions into really public things where now everybody's debating, you know, <laughs> what's on the syllabus and what is, you know, what uh, we have this now. It's, it's almost as though it's we're repeating it. race theory, right? right? It's right, almost like, as though the same yeah. thing is happening all over again. And that's the point at which, you know, I think the credit goes to Todd Gitlin, who wrote this book, I think 95, Twilight of Common Dreams, which is a critique of identity politics, in which now the term is used pejoratively, you know, that's very different from the Comedy River Collection. It's used to criticize tendencies on the left that are seen as divisive and so on that, that, don't, uh, that don't allow us to form a kind of collective togetherness as Americans who will vote for Bill Clinton. 
which is T- Gitlin's, you know, utopia. And uh, so, so that's the standpoint. You, you had the extreme right, and, and then you had someone like Gitlin. That's the standpoint from which identity politics became a pejorative term. So you can see why people are defensive about it, because that was not a compelling alternative. <laughs> right, right, and you're right. It completely, you know, in 2016, basically, it repeated itself entirely with, like, Mark Lilla and other exactly. people coming out and Same saying like, the reason why exactly. Trump won was because of identity politics. And then it became fully pejorative. I don't know, I find it interesting, like, just, in, you know, just to go a little bit more on like the word itself where it almost seems like it is now not used right Mm -hmm. like um over the past year or so and that it's been completely replaced with like wokeism or wokeness Mm. or something like that right where because like the people who would use identity politics pejoratively i don't really hear that so much anymore and so now they've almost found an all-encompassing term right that that also includes uh not just race because i think identity politics generally signals race, but, right, like, the LGBTQ struggle, uh, you know, like, uh, Me Too, right? Like, all this sort of stuff is now lumped within, like, this category of wokeness. And I, I don't know, like, I, I, maybe it's just me, but I just haven't heard identity politics used in the same way, or at least with the same frequency. That's a pretty interesting point, because the thing, you know, I identify this moment in the 90s where it's used pejorative, where it begins to be used pejoratively, but... I think, like I said, in 2016, you found that it was used positively to say, like, you're not paying enough attention to identity politics when you say that everyone should have health care. You know, you have to pay attention to identity politics, which somehow is not compatible with saying that everybody should have health care. But that's how it was used. And so then it became used positively but in the in, in a, like an exact mirror reflection of what these people were criticizing. And it's like, you know... Th- th- those two sides they can't live without each other people they d- you know they need each other to become indignant about and uh, but they're neither of those is a compelling political position so i think it's because of that because identity politics no longer had this charge this negative charge people were using it positively now they're using these other terms wokeness it sounds you know it sounds it has a mocking tone i guess when you say that um well, so it, I guess yeah, that's why. and it sounds more conspiratorial in some sort of way, right? Whereas identity politics, I think that basically the reason why people resisted or people who wanted to mock that type of politics maybe ultimately found it uncomfortable is because then you're just saying, you know, imp- the implicit thing is like, well, hey, all you people, you know, all you not white people, shut up, right? right? But wokeness also encompasses like all the white people who do it, right? And and it's interesting how strategically they, they will point out like white people who are doing this or you know like Robin D'Angelo for example right yeah. like Robin D'Angelo becomes a whipping person for for all this sort of stuff because Robin D'Angelo um you know and I, I do think that people do go after Kendi a little bit more um now, now they do yeah. but at the beginning it's all Robin D'Angelo because you yeah, can just yeah. be like oh well woke is, is not just identity politics you know whereas we would have to criticize Kendi which makes us uncomfortable right, right? right. not us but you know the the critics yeah. And, um, yeah, I think both of us would be pretty comfortable criticizing Kendi if we wanted to, right? But, like, um, you know, it it turns to Robin D'Angelo, and then it's just about wokeness, and then it's about, yeah. like, diversity seminars and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how that's changed. But here's the question, you know, like, what at this point is actually politically different between Mark Lilla and Robin D'Angelo? Like, they both, you know, 
like, come on, they, they both definitely voted for Biden. They're, they're both definitely into that. They, you know, they, they believe that, uh, you know, Democrats, I, I, don't, I don't know, actually, the specific views that these, obviously, they're their own privately held opinions. But from what they say in their work, <laughs> you know, neither of them is going to advocate some kind of radical transformation of, you know, uh, inequality of wealth in this country. But it would take a lot more than basic uh, kinds of Biden level policies, but because they they believe in, you know, we got to get Trump out. You know, we got it, and and they have these different languages, so they may disagree about rhetoric. They may say like, the best way to get the Democrats to win an election is to appeal to everyone as an American citizen and not use this divisive uh, woke language. Or they might say the best way to get Biden to win the election was to um, uh, challenge people's whiteness because that's what makes them vote for Trump. Didn't make you know it wasn't always the explanation as we learned for why people voted for Trump, uh, but but it's like the politics actually of advocates of identity politics or whatever you want to call it and the critics the liberal critics is is not it's hard to distinguish. Yeah, yeah, I find it interesting that some of the most sort of you know um, pointed critics of this stuff are like you know the people who end up voting for. Elizabeth Warren, right? Like Trump is not an option for them. Or they, you know, they might be Pete Buttigieg supporters who are just like, you know, well, he's like, you know, he's a gay man. And, you know, like, yeah. why are we doing this divisive stuff, uh, you know, talking about identity <laughs> politics with, the, you know, like arguing with the K-Hive or something like that. And in the end, it's just sort of people, you know, punching, you know, slightly to the right or to the left or up or down or whatever. It's, uh, it is, it is true. And, um, yeah, I, I find myself, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about like that. I think we have more interesting things to talk about than like what's going on with like, you know, like all this sort of conversation. So like I, I want to move to like this. Yeah, you wrote this passage in, in, in the book and I'm going to read it here. And I, I just want you to react to it, which is uh, there's also the matter of my personal contact with black revolutionary theory. You're describing here sort of your intellectual journey, um, which first exposed me to Malcolm X and Huey Newton's critiques of the precursors of identity politics. Following their practice, I define identity politics as the neutralization of movements against racial oppression. It is the ideology that emerged to appropriate this emancipatory legacy in service of the advancement of political and economic elites. Um, what do you mean by that? So, yeah, that's like the basic thesis of the book insofar as we right. can identify one, which is the, it revolves around this word neutralization. And so... The idea, as I was alluding to earlier, as I described, you know, the entry of a kind of new uh, black political class into government of, uh, you know, people uh, entering into the economic ruling class uh, at, on a scale that, had, that, that wasn't there before. Um, that is the phenomenon of neutralization, because what's important about that is that it was preceded by mass movements that were really throwing the whole structure of society into question. Because, you know, you look at the civil rights movement, and I'm referring to figures who come at, you know, Malcolm X, and Malcolm X doesn't come after the civil rights movement, but uh, his uh, he, he has this profound influence on the black power movement, which we can say comes after uh, the major legislative victories of the civil rights movement, which are the ones which establish these kinds of contradictory conditions. Mm -hmm. Everybody out of these mass movements, you know, 
a lot of people uh, who criticize identity politics, they like to talk about Bayard Rustin's article from protest to politics, you know, in which he says, okay, we, we, we did, we had this movement against uh, legal segregation in the South and um, uh, we did that through protest. We did that through, you know, mass civil disobedience and now that we've changed the laws, we have to deal with the fact that there are all of these forms of uh, economic inequality, there's poverty, that's what black people now need, are, are, are dealing with, and we need to address that. And so, so that's one step in the argument. The right. second step is that he says, we need to do that by getting into politics. We need to, you know, run people for office. We need to we need to engage with the state machine. Those are two distinct arguments, which, you know, people conflate. So some, you know, there are critics of identity politics who are distinct from me. They think that I am an advocate of identity politics or something, and they often invoke this. But those, those are two distinct steps in the argument. Because if you look, Rustin at this point is constantly arguing with Martin Luther King, because Martin Luther King agrees with the first step of the argument. We need to deal with poverty. We need to deal with inequality. And, but, but King says, we're going to do that by escalating civil disobedience. We need to have bigger numbers. We need to shut down airports. We need to shut down traffic uh, in Washington, D.C. And uh, so that, that was, you know, this is a kind of a crisis situation in which people have to make decisions about how this movement is going to go forward and how they're going to deal with these uh, ongoing problems and neutralization is when the, that potential gets channeled into just making minor adjustments in the already existing social structure. So you still got poverty, you still got inequality, but you got Obama. That's what it is now. And you know, right. so I mean, that's that's the basic problem. So that's that's what neutralization is supposed to describe. Right, and um, you know, later in the book, you sort of talk about it in the context of your experience with uh, the first protests around Black Lives Matter, uh, 2014, 2015, and and um, you know, I, I was covering a lot of that as a reporter too, and um, you know, it's, it was part of what you said spoke to me quite a bit, which is just that you know, it seemed you know, outside of what you write about, you know, what happens with the Hillary Clinton campaign and the sort of like immediate like appropriation and co-option that happens. But, you know, like I, I think that like for me, you know, you see it happen and you see sort of things drift, right? And um, and that it's difficult because it's such a big movement and, you know, there's still people at the core who are making the types of demands that I think that, you know, like you or I, many people would agree with. And then you see sort of this almost immediate drift into like, well, what, ha into representational politics, right? So like, uh, and I don't know, even see it like now where it's like people are like, oh, wow, these Asian people are getting beat up in the streets and killed. And like, you know, why doesn't Biden have an AAPI person mm -hmm. in his cabinet? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ, yeah. you know, who fucking cares at this, you know? Yeah. Like if you if you are terrified of, of this sort of stuff and you're in these neighborhoods where this stuff is happening or if you're just walking down the street and somebody, you know, attacks you, like, you know, like it's like, how is that going to help you? And yet, it seems to be almost the immediate mechanism right now. Um, yeah. You know, like historically speaking, was that was that always true? Like, was it like when did when did this start happening? Where, you know, representational politics or identity politics, whatever you want to call it, you know, ends up being 
almost the uh, uh, you know, and I, I don't think it's like I don't think I, I don't think we can treat it as one thing and say that like one thing turns into another thing, right? I think there's like five things at the beginning, and then the the thing at the core of it, which is like let's say people walking out of their houses in Ferguson um, after Mike Brown gets shot and starting you know starting a protest. Like I don't think I don't think that's the same as people you know as as people sort of turning this into a representational thing, right? And I, I think for in 2014 it actually took a while for that to happen, um, right? But now it just seems like it's immediate, right? Anytime there's a protest, it like kicks off and it becomes about the media or it becomes about media criticism or it becomes about uh, why don't you have more AAPI people in government or, you know, what's happening in Hollywood representation. Um, is, is that just like a natural thing that happens with every protest or is this something that has a history with it too? That's an interesting question. I mean, at a certain level, you could say that there has, you can find it's like equivalents of that for long stretches of history you know these are these are things that have been debated i mean they were debated in in black movements since like probably you know say the end of the 19th century uh, in, right. in in the specific way that you mean um but uh it's an interesting question about representational politics I sometimes people ask me about that and i think about you know you you probably have your own take on this growing up like you watch TV and everybody, you know, that you you got taxi drivers who you know are like jokes who like look like you and it's and you know people people compare you to the one people compare me to the Not one Indian the one yeah. Indian they ever yeah. saw on you know and uh, I did not like that so uh, I thought yeah it would be great to have. Uh, South Asians on TV, more representation. Sometimes when it happened a little bit, like Harold and Kumar, that was good because you know you, it wasn't he, they were, it, we, they weren't nerds. They, they 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 were potheads, and people thought they were funny and cool. And so it was better to like have people like uh, randomly offer me weed than call me you know tell me to go back to Afghanistan or whatever. Uh, so. Uh, like, okay, at a certain level, it was meaningful to me to have a change in representation. But now, what's the situation now? We got Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley. You know, great. It, sometimes you don't really want to get what you wish for. You get, this is, you know, it's like, <laughs> when you get what you wish for, it can be a disappointment. I think we, we all, when we reflect, we know this is true in our lives. So the representational politics, I totally understand. I, ex I experience the desire for this. But then when you get what you wish for, you realize uh, that did not solve the problem, and you know we need to, you know, we need to not think of this in terms of wish fulfillment. We need to think of this with a little bit of cold, hard uh, objectivity uh, strategy, and think about what it, what actually is it going to take for people to be safe. Uh, you know, when you got this, you know, pandemic, what is it going to take for people to be safe? It's not going to take Biden a point. You know, maybe that would make some difference, but it's, it's not going to, you have a situation of social breakdown here because, right. you, you know, people, people can't work. People are struggling. You need to deal with issues like that. Uh, if you want to uh, change people's behaviors, uh, that's, that's fundamental. Well, I, you know, I guess like, 
the two seem separate to me because, you know, it's the same thing, right? Like, uh, you know, I went through the same thing and I think that probably with better representation in media that some of those, you know, moments wouldn't have happened, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, being called Jackie Chan or something like that. Yeah. And they're like, well, is this the biggest deal? It's like, no, it's not the biggest deal, you know? Did I make it through that okay? Yes, I made it through that okay. It doesn't mean everyone makes it through that okay. Uh, like, um, would it have been cool if it had been different? Sure, you know? It wasn't like it was... I'm not saying, like, you know, that was, like, great and I just accept the world as it is. But it, I guess, like, what's been interesting to me is just how, how like, I think that is a separate conversation than, you know, the conversations about, uh, you know... Like the the conversations, like you said, like you know, like Huey Newton is having, right? Like the conversations about liberation, the conversations that the first organizers, not even organizers, just people walking out, right, in Ferguson are having about the police and their treatment from the police, and then, you know, they're them telling stories about being pulled over sixty times in a year. You know, the second they drive drive out of Ferguson into some other parish in St. Louis, and they're immediately pulled over, they get like uh, taxed with hundreds of stupid, uh, you know, traffic tickets. And then, you know, like these, this, and then they get harassed by the police. They have court dates, et cetera, et cetera, all this, mm-hmm. all this sort of builds. And then the representational question, the identity thing is totally separate. And then it almost mm-hmm. always engulfs it, right? Almost, and now, especially, I think from the beginning, it engulfs it and that it has become part of the conversation. So uh, you have like people now with this, you know, with the stuff that's going on with the Asian Americans, you know, they're talking, it, it's not even like, hey, I, we all, you know, this would not happen if we had more Asian people on television, right? Who are like representing something other than a perpetual foreigner. It's literally like, you know, this, the two have sort of melded, right? And it's, it's not a demand anymore. It's people are sort of saying, well, because this film exists and I think of myself through this film, you know, or I, or I saw like, you know, uh, how it's so sad to me that on the day that this film got nominated for an Oscar, that this act of violence happens. And, you know, it, it's strange to me because, you know, I, I try not to be judgmental about this because I think people are grieving and they're, they're scared. But it's been interesting to see how, like, it's almost like one thing now, whereas before, um, where, or it's almost like the, the actual thing is so small that the only way that we know how to express it is through this sort of greater identity thing. Um, I don't know. What you... Well, we're always going to have, you know, I mean, the, the issues at stake, what, what's caused us to have these social problems and, the, and what it will take to address them that's like not something you can just sit down and figure out and it's something that is always going to be uh outside of the grasp of any individual to just kind of process like this so we're always going to have some kind of partial maybe even distorted way of representing it to ourselves you know we in a, in our experience and so a lot well you know it's like what does someone mean when they say that like we have we have a horrible tragedy and what, why why do we have tragedies like that where you know people are murdered by police and pe- you know all the, like we have it because of centuries of history in which okay you you have uh uh which has generated racism which has also generated the 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 police as an institution that protects private property and controls the poor and does it with violence and you know how how can we possibly change 
a structure like that that's so deeply ingrained and that that and that reproduces itself with weapons uh, and and uh, you know armed force that you know who, who, who we we don't know how to face up to that. Uh, so you think of a you think of a tragedy. You think like okay, that's like this move. That's like this Oscar thing. Like that's what we we always you know. There's all white people always win Oscars. That's something that you can process and understand. You can say that somebody else should win an Oscar. Th- that can happen. <laughs> you know, that's right. like we can conceive of that in our imaginations, and so that is appealing. And and that that's and what like what I'm what I'm trying to point to is that there are reasons. There are perfectly good reasons for that because actually we can't just figure it all out on our own. That's why you need to have. A politics that goes beyond you, because you can't do it by yourself. And of course, when you when you're trying to do it by yourself, you're going to remain in the imagination like that. We need to have politics that are beyond us as individuals, that aren't just about our own experiences, but are about uh, adding our our knowledge and our powers together to do something that we couldn't do before. And that's yeah, what it'll take. The word, you know, in the section that I read, the word that is interesting to me is because you're, you're talking about uh, the advancement of political and economic elites, right? And I think that's sort of, I think maybe that is why it becomes quickly blown up into that realm, right? Because uh, if you're talking about sort of isolation and the people who are isolated to the point where they can only think about things as on an individual level, um, I think that it is, you know, especially amongst... Uh, People of color, you know. I mean, I don't know. I don't like. I, I hate to use that term, but you know, people who aren't white, right? Like, yeah. um, like the the elites of the pe- are generally people who don't have too much connection to those people either, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 but they feel compelled to feel connected to that and to nobody else, right? Like, um, if I'm Korean, then I need to, you know, the only people that I can be connected to are Asian Americans. If I think Asian American is a silly term, then I'm totally isolated, you know, and then. And then, of course, this type of narcissism sets in, and that you know you sort of conflate your own concerns with every with everything else. And if your own concerns are like, well, I'd like to win an Oscar one day, then maybe yeah. maybe that's how it happens. Um, the other yeah. thing is that we have basically highly sophisticated technology for generating greater levels of isolation now. You know, which is social media, and we have the you know every social media is now determining so much of what ha- what happens in other traditional media. I mean, that's that's kind of amazing. You know, I mean, right. like, p- presidential tweets, you know, were, like, these are historic documents, right? I mean, so social media is, a, it's, it's not just, it's, it's not like, you know, old fogies complaining, all oh, the kids with their social media. It's like, this is a real thing. This is really changing our society. And... It it you know what you're describing as representational politics is all representation. It's like everything is rep you know finding a way of representing yourself, representing an identity. Rep- you know everything you can do to produce particular kinds of representations that are going to have a circulation on the internet that are going to allow you to get recognition, to win arguments, whatever it is. Uh, just sitting there with your screen, <laughs> you know, and, and and just you against the world, and 
that that is I think that is actually it's not something that I have explored or, or written about a lot, but I think that's a serious problem. That's a very serious problem. Right, right. Because I I remember like so this summer, um, you know, I would go to protests and I would see the people there and I would listen to them, right? So um and then I would come back online and, you know, uh, I would see people who are my colleagues in the media having a completely separate conversation. And there was arguing like, oh, what's the point of this? Right. And like that type of stuff, I have no, I have no, you know, I, I, like my general thing is that I think that protest is necessary and should be done at all times. So like, I don't have, I don't even bother with that. But it was the other thing being like, oh, these protests are just about like rich kids, you know, trying to get like, like, and then I would just be like, no. That's what it is online, you know, yeah. but I promise you at like the yeah. ILWU protest where yeah. like, and it's not just the, the ILWU people or like Angela Davis or Danny Glover or any of the people there. It's also like, you know, like the people who were there who might have been rich tech people who came down there. They weren't doing that for like, you know, because they care about like who works at Bon Appetit or something like that, yeah. you know. But it was interesting because it was, you know, they're there because they 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 are, you know, I, I think in very good faith, right? Like they're incensed by what happened to George Floyd. Yeah. They're confused and they think that coming to this thing will help, right? It'll help yeah. them and it'll help. And and of course you should of course you should applaud that. And then you come back and then because social media has such a big effect on media itself, um, it's not like, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's, it, you talk to like people who are in the civil rights movement, it's not like they reject the media, right? Like they said, we needed the media. But back then when a reporter goes and like goes to Selma or something like that, right? Like the person is just going to see the people and they're going to report it and that's going to be what the media is. And now it's like this thing can happen, this massive protest, right? And that can be the that can be sort of the jumping off point where this whole narcissistic conversation happens online. And then the media just reports a narcissistic co conversation online. Right. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like there's these parallel worlds and maybe we shouldn't yeah. take the other one so seriously, except that it's the one that like I happen to be in as like a professional, yeah. but also it's also the one that, you know, like the New York times, all these other places will mostly report on, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's wild to me. And I think people take it with them, you know, because everybody has something in that world that, and, and, and they, they bring it with them into real life and that, that can be damaging um, uh, to the potential for people to work together, basically. But I think um, what what you're describing is it's 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 funny in this way. It's 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 not funny in the sense that it's such a it's, it causes so many problems in people actually understanding what's going on. But a lot of the people who say these things about protests online, it's like it was all white anarchists. It was all tech bros. It's like. Those people, I think, have never been to a protest. Right, <laughs> and, you know, right. it's, it, you don't. It, it, protests are the only thing. I, I don't really enjoy going to protests. Mostly, you know, you just you go do it and put in your time. Um, and there are many other things that are just as or or more important in political life than protests. But you go to a protest, you learn some different things about how these. Things Things work. You learn a little bit about how people uh, who are just about to be arrested, 200 people about to be arrested, are trying to figure out how to not go to jail. That is a very specific experience. You don't really get that by sitting on, on Twitter. Uh, you're not going to understand that. You're not going to know who was there. 
like, okay, you have looting in Soho. You're going to say it was white anarchists. Yeah, outside who, agitators. Who, who, who went and did the statistical study on this? You know, right. who went and, and wrote, de- like, asked everyone, te- you know, uh, what's your income? What's, you know, I mean, come on. And, you know, I, I was there. I, that was not, I, that's, that, that's, <laughs> what people say is not, is not accurate. <laughs> so you, you need to, you, you, I mean, that's, that, the people think they know what's happening in the world by looking at these things. And, you know, sometimes you have to leave your room. I know it's 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 like uh, the the white anarchist part was the funniest thing to me because I was like, I would you know I don't know I just go to protest for my job but also you know because uh, I believe in them and it's just like and they're like all these white anarchists showed up I was like that's like every protest like what what are you talking about yeah because they go to protest. I, I, because yeah, they want to protest things. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, they just want to fight the they want to fight the cops. You know, like, that's what they that's what they do. And I, I I went to one around here, and it was uh, there was this guy who stood up. He was a speaker, and um, he was he was very young, and he goes, uh, he's like, I don't want these white anarchists uh, at our protest. And then like the person who was much older and much more experienced who had organized the whole thing sort of like cuts him off. She's like, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't kick the white anarchists out. And she was like, many of my best friends are white anarchists. Yeah. And like, that's, you know, like that's the history, especially here in the Bay area, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Um, and, and it was so, yeah, it was, it was really, and then, you know, that whole story becomes like a, a week of coverage because like there's some video that comes out yeah, of like yeah. you know like kids smashing up like a yeah. CBS or something like that and um, and it's interesting yeah. how this ideology works that people would say things that are so counterintuitive and obviously self defeating which is we don't want you to come to our protest. Right, I mean, right. That that makes no sense. <laughs> say, right. like, you know, so, <laughs> I mean, but 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 we are at this point in, in the discourse where that seems like a logical thing to say, and that's great. That's that's a strange phenomenon. Though that's a form of the identity. Uh, you know, like I don't I don't even want to use the term, but there is this thing where uh, I feel like there is a self-reflective and almost backwards way of saying like we want. It's it's almost a respectability argument, right? Like we and and the foundations for that respectability argument are totally mislabeled and misrepresented visions of like the civil rights movement of people peacefully singing "We Shall Overcome" while walking and getting their heads beaten by the cops, right? Like that's what that's I think what people who are like mad at like outside agitators or who yeah. say like these white anarchists are showing up, like that's sort of what. That's what they're. That's what they're arguing. Yeah. I think that that's what they want. And you know, I think that if you're going to your first protest, that you know, of course, you're gonna have sort of a nostalgic and idealized version vision mm-hmm. of what it could be. But the but the messaging of that is basically just like, and you know, a lot of the stuff that was done with like organizing people into like the white allies go here, you know, yeah. and and you go here. Um, I don't know, you know, in some ways I like kind of understand, like I remember the first time at the Philando Castile protest where I saw like, uh, you know, it was on the highway and everything was shut down and, and somebody was like, okay, wall of white allies, go, yeah, you know, because yeah. the cops are walking up. And I thought, it was, I was like, whoa, that was wild. <laughs> you know, like all the white people walked to the front of it yeah. to confront the cops, you know. Yeah. And in that sort of space, I'm like, 
Well, I look strategically. That has got to be a mind fuck for these cops. You know, they suddenly <laughs> they just see like a whole bunch yeah. of white people standing yeah. there. There's like a, they're like old church ladies like in the wall of White House. So like right. people in the like seventies and stuff. I was right. like, these, you know, these cops must be like. Uh, but you know, it almost seems like uh, it almost seemed ritualized in sometimes this summer. And um, but yeah. Still, at the same time, it's just like these people are showing up and, like, however you want to organize it, organize it. But, like, uh, it was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, that sort of filter on it outside of as many people come who care about this as possible. Yeah. I don't know. It seems to be almost a product of, like, online interfering. Yeah, maybe maybe there is some sort of interference there or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think sure. I think there's interference. There's also that these, you know... There is an organizational continuity here, so it's like, like you said, you know, who, who, or, who organized this? You show up to a protest, you have no idea who organized it. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe somebody just made an Instagram post, and then a bunch of people just showed up. Could have been anybody. And you yeah. know, I was at, I was at one of these uh, over the summer, and a, you know, a guy had uh, a bullhorn. And he was giving instructions, and then at the end of the night, and he's like telling people to go home. He's, t- you know, and people are like, "I don't want to go home." And uh, then he starts complaining and saying, "Somebody just gave me this bullhorn. I, I didn't want, you know. I just showed up. Somebody gave me this, and now everybody thinks I'm the leader, and they're mad at me." It's like, you know, <laughs> you're not, you're not the leader. You, that, yeah. you, you don't do that. So. Right. Uh, so that's and, and so why is it that then you get all of these weird things about like segregating groups and you know all like uh, it, it's it's just that there there isn't an overarching strategy there isn't an organizational cohesion and people aren't going in with a plan and 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 that that will generate a situation which all kinds of things are going to come to the surface you know right. the, the social media stuff or, or just just random panic and, and <laughs> suspicion you know which, which is which is inevitable in circumstances when people are pressured and agitated by for for good reasons you know yeah yeah there's I, 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 you know i think it depends i think it is regional too like it seems like new york uh there was much more of that where people would show up and they would have no idea who was leading it. And then, you know, I remember there's like this whole controversy over a guy who was leading marches and he ended up being like a Zionist. Right. And he was, uh, and you know, people got mad at him and they're like, Oh, he's AstroTurf and stuff like that. It wasn't as big of an issue here. I don't think because there's such a deep and long time, uh, history of organizing that goes all the way back to the Panthers, right. In Oakland. So, um, we didn't see as much of it here, but I would say that there was less protest period here because the people who were organizing it understood the risks of the pandemic and were much mm-hmm. more measured about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you had much more, like, you know, kind of, you had actions that were not necessarily, like, you know, they would shut down a street, but then they would say, look, we can't have ev- the cops rushing in and have everybody smashed together and spread yeah. coronavirus with each other. So there would be some sort of negotiation being like, look, we're going to be here for like the next eight hours or something like that. And it was less sort of mass, you know, I don't know, people doing whatever they want. Yeah. <laughs> and it was much more organized. Um, all right, well, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
All right. Well, let, do you want, let, let's talk about Noel Ignatieff because I think that's when you know that was part of the book that I read. Where I, you know um, I think some of the listeners in our show uh, of the show know that he's my you know one of my mentors and uh, somebody who was my freshman year professor and somebody I kept up with until uh, he passed a couple of years ago. Um, and um, you know, like what 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 about his work was was you know drew you in to write about him in the book? Like, uh, like, like, why Ignatiev uh, in the context of, of identity politics? I, I will say, just to start, like, there's, like, when I talked to him um, at his house once, he was like, he was, <laughs> he, he sort of went through the same thing, right? He was just like, he was like, all my friends, all my old lefty friends are just bitching about identity politics all the time. And he's like, I can't handle it, you know? <laughs> and so he was trying to navigate some way through, whereas, of course, he didn't, you know, he thought that the mm-hmm. Hillary campaign bringing up, like, the mothers of the people killed by the police was monstrous, right? But, um, but you know, he was trying to navigate some space between, you know, like, a sort of, class reductionism that is hostile towards racial liberation movements, right? And sort of the most uh, cynical evocations of identity politics as well, which I think is something that, that you also are trying to do in your work. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Why, why, why Ignatiev? Well, you know, I never had the privilege of meeting him, um, but uh, I, he's somebody who I discovered um, in two different ways, and I can't say whether one came before the other, but, you know, one sense, which is very important, uh, is that, you know, this is somebody who generated, if you want to talk about histories of words, I mean, white privilege is right. something that we have to trace back to what Noel Ignatiev was writing about in the 60s, you know, and it meant something totally different. Once again, yeah, it's like that's, totally it's different. Yeah, the same thing as identity politics. <laughs> yeah. It's so strange. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like when people talk about white, like when people use white privilege now, it's just like, oh my god, it's so different. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, so yeah, listeners who want to know, you go, you just search online for white blind spot, which you know you'll find this like pamphlet, which is these basically letters between Noel Ignatiev and Ted Allen, who wrote the invention of the white race. You know, uh, so yeah, Ted Allen wrote the invention of the white race, and Noel Ignatiev wrote how the Irish became white, and these were, you know, these were path-breaking figures in talking about how whiteness is something that is historically, socially produced. It's not just that there are white, there are not, there, you know, white people don't exist in the sense white people have been produced by processes that put together people who are completely at odds with each other in Europe and so on. And so, you know, that, that basic insight about how race comes into being that it's it's so important and so frequently missed and even if people know if they have the idea race is socially constructed or something like that what does that mean and like how how does that change the way that you understand race because even if you don't think race is biological if you start from the premise that you don't believe in biological hierarchies of people. You don't believe bone structures determine the, like sure. how smart you are or whatever. But you may still believe like, yeah, obviously, you know, you, you got you got the dark skin and you got like the whatever the facial structure and the hair. So you're you're this race. That's yeah, that's uh, that's all. And, and you're just as good as me, but you're this other race. Uh, but but that's the that you're falling into you you're falling to the same framework that used to be biological, but now 
even if it's not biological, it's still getting the process backwards. Because actually the racial categories are what then get attached to you, saying like, now we, we got this racial category, and now because you have this hair, because you have this, we're going to put you in that. It's not part of who I am. That, right. that, that's totally meaningless. And so uh, Ignati, a major figure in, in laying that out. So this history, white privilege, the, and, and, and just to make it clear for people who don't, don't know what we mean when we say that the concept changed, I mean, Noel Ignatiev and Ted Allen were making this argument that white privilege prevents white workers from actually pursuing their own interests. And uh, so the, the idea of undermining white privilege is not something that's about making white people feel bad or about, uh, you know, um, just uh, uh, condemning them. It's about uh, uh, actually making it possible for them to uh, pursue greater uh, political power and to pursue uh, their own economic demands. That's, that's, a, that's a totally different idea than what we have now. So... Um, so that history was important. And then there's a second thing, you know, and this is something that I think about a lot. Uh, and it's, I think that's what it's when you talked about how he was complaining about, you know, all, everybody's talking about identity politics is this is somebody who comes out of a very important history um, of revolutionary movements in the United States. Somebody who was in this since the 50s at least, I think, the 50s. Right, and, and parents were too, right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that that is part of our history. It's part of American history. And we don't, we think, you know, the Communist Party, through the new left, through to eventually, you know, a small but significant group in the ideas they were putting forward, the Sojourner Truth Organization, you know, this is a lifetime of revolutionary politics that Noel Ignatiev represented. And it's important to recognize that's part of American history. It's also important to recognize that that is uh, a way of, of being political that we've lost to a very significant extent now, such that it's hard for people to even recognize that it exists. So oh my God, yeah. in these yeah. in these debates back and forth pro or against identity politics, you know when when uh, I, I've had critics on both sides, and you know sometimes maybe you know on, on both sides people will say that I want to balance between class politics and identity politics. I think we should do both of them. I think there's a good and a bad identity politics. We should take the good. You know these are like really odd like constructions of of our current discourse they're not you know and i i don't claim any originality for the position that i have which is none of those positions it's the basic position of revolutionary politics which Noel Ignati have had and millions of people around the world have had for the, the whole history of people being exploited and dominated and it's the idea that we we should bring an end to that, and and that is a political position that's not caught up in a back and forth about identity, class reductionism, whatever. It's the position which says we want to get rid of 
domination by people over other people, exploitation of the majority of the world's population. We want to get rid of that from the earth because it's possible to do that and it's not and it hasn't happened because some people have held on to power and because we have an insane social system called capitalism that has just perpetuated this for 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 way longer than our planet can even handle. So that is a very basic position which it shouldn't we shouldn't have to justify that we shouldn't have to uh try to you know um like present some new packaging for that 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 is a that is something that we should proudly maintain and or that, like shoehorn yeah. it into electoral politics right which is something he never did until like even you know up until the day that he passed it's not like um you know he was very and look, you can feel however you want about it, but you know he was very skeptical of the Bernie movement. You know, um, he was very skeptical of like the sort of what had happened to the Black White Unite uh, mm-hmm. of labor conversation. And you know, he was to his to his death a, a revolutionary. You know, and um, I think you're right. You know, it's something that you bring it up. It's like did, I read this article that my friend Vincent did about uh, with he did an interview with Robin D G Kelly. You know, one of the things that I thought about was like you know he Robin D G Kelly sort of. Uh, describing his life, right, and like like the reading groups, and you know, getting involved in politics, and you know, Rainbow Coalition, all this sort of stuff. And it, you're right; it's like the thought I have is just like we just don't have those lives anymore, right? We don't have, or even uh, Noel's life, which is like he goes to Penn and then he leaves and he goes to work in the factories, right, to to try and organize workers, and he develops these ideas with Ted Allen about. You know, well, the problem from what I see from observing all of this is that white people basically think they're white, right? And yeah. so they're never going to rise up against their, against management, you know, and they're not going to, but to rise up against management, they also need to deal with, you know, the fact that 40% of the people who are working in the factory are black, you know? And so as long as they just think, well, at least I'm not black, right? Yeah. They're not going to rise up. And so, yeah. <laughs> that's not You're hard to like understand. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, that. that's not hard to understand. You look at, you look at the history of this country, it should be easy to see why that is a relevant point. And then it's the perversions of it are so interesting to me because, you know, like whiteness studies, like is is supposed to come out of, right, the, the tradition of, of, uh, of like, of, of what was happening Sojourner Truth with uh, STO, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, but it obviously doesn't. It's kind of the opposite, right? And so, um, like, he was like, with, you know, one of the things he said was just like, uh, you know, it, white privilege now seems to be a term to remind people that they're white, you know? And, yeah. like, my whole thing was I was trying to get them to forget to forget they were white. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and it is really the opposite, right? And then you have, uh, you know, like, uh, I mean, not to harp on this person too much, but, like, something, you know, I think even Kendi, Kendi or, or Robin D'Angelo, right? Like, the, there is something to the fact that... Um, that what they're doing is they're sort of making whiteness so real, right? Yeah. And yeah. um, and I don't know. I mean, look, I, I I also think like these ideas are like fifty years old or whatever, and and you know it's not like we can hold them up right. and say that this is like a perfect representation of it. But um, and certainly there's like the cynical version of that and saying like therefore we should never think about race at all and keep things exactly the way they are, which is not what. Ignatiev mm-hmm. and Allen and all those people are saying it all, obviously, mm-hmm. right? They're saying, no, we need a revolution, you know? Yeah. And, so and, that, when that, like, yeah. and they didn't do this because they said, we got we to gotta balance between race and class. It's like, right, people, right. like, now people start with these abstractions, like 
well, we know race is important, and we know class is important. We got to figure out a way to you know put them together. No, it's like you start from the position of human emancipation, and then you're like, there's you know we 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 have to understand what is the system that's preventing this from being achieved. And it's not about what we feel is the most important thing or whatever. It's about figuring out how we actually, you know, turn this thing around. How how can we actually overturn the society? You you just and 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 when you have the situation you're describing, in which you have a factory in which half the workers are black, half the workers are white, and they they won't join together to resist management because they think, okay, at least, you know, I get paid more than, than this guy and I, I can I can do things uh, that this guy can't do. You won't you won't achieve it. So that's a right. that's it's not about mixing race and class or about, you know, it, it, like intersection of all of the equal oppressions or whatever. It's about what are you gonna do to change the system? Yeah, yeah, and we seem very far from that now, except, like, I, I guess I have just, two, you know, like, I, I have completely contradictory thoughts about it, which is that the first, I just think, well, the current discourse is totally anathema to that, you know? Like, the way that we think about race is totally, like, we're always going to fixate on it, and we're never going to drop it, right? We're always going to have these micro-litigations about um, every single inequality, which does seem to be, like, you know, a portion of that conversation. And yet, at the same time, you know, however many millions of people were out in the streets last summer, yeah. right? Yeah. And then that seems like, I don't know how to, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, it seems like the second part is much yeah. more important, you know? And so, uh, yeah. and yeah. that perhaps the people were not able, just as I am not able to articulate exactly why that, you know, what what that meant, right? But, man, they, they left their houses and they went out, you know? And, and so perhaps we're closer than, than the discourse would think. Maybe the discourse is behind people's actual willingness to go out and, you know, I think do we, something, get beat up by cops. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we have, often we have an impulse just to, like, make everything neatly fit together. So either it's all wokeness, you know, protests are wokeness, Twitter is wokeness, all of it is, is, is just going the wrong way. Or we just say all of it's, you know, uh, it's a good identity politics. All of, you know, uh, we, we can protest, but then we also have to, you know, get white people to check their privilege. And we also right. have to, you know, cancel people who said a particular word or whatever. Uh, but no, it, it, it's not, you don't have to make it all one. I think there is a contradiction. The con- it's, it's not just a mental like, it's not just that you see, like, I don't know how to reconcile these two things. The contradiction's real. Because you have, you have these, these real, like, uh, you have a, an expression of real opposition to real social problems. And then it's getting tied up in the discourse with this toxic way of basically, like, uh, depoliticizing everything. And mm-hmm. um, so that's a real contradiction right now, and, and 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 it's hard to recognize that because these things are are being melded together so much. But I think it's a real contradiction. Yeah, and I do. You, I mean, do you think that you know? Cause I want to move on to like some of what you've written since the book, and you know, in, in viewpoint, you write this. I don't know. I found this really 
cogent to the moment. And as you're talking about depoliticiza uh, depoliticization, right? And so you write, like, our global situation is one characterized by the increasing politicization of social movements, a flood of young people towards politics, and a sharpening awareness of the traps of political institution within the status quo. My claim, then, will seem somewhat paradoxical. I propose that our situation should be understood not only in terms of a resurgent radical politics, but also with attention to the perniciousness of its opposite, the frame of depoliticization. What is depoliticization? What is the effect of depoliticization? I can't pronounce this word, I'm sorry. On the growth of <laughs> yeah. movements and organizations. How can tendencies of depoliticization be combated? Uh, yeah, what, what's the answer to that? Like, so like, what, in that scenario that we're talking about, right, where tens of millions of people are out in the streets, right, but then the conversation about it outside of like, this man should not have died and fuck the police, right, mm -hmm. um, is like all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is the all over the place, is that the depoliticization that you're talking about? Like, like is, that, is that how sort of the, the cover is put on all of this? Or, or like, like what it, um, what is, like, how did, how did depoliticization work in that big moment? That's a, that's a very interesting question. So uh, w one thing to kind of explain um, what, why I'm using that word, what's uh, distinct about it. You know, we talked earlier about neutralization. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, neutralization basically is this top-down thing where you have these elites and you have mass movements and they adopt the language and uh, some of the uh, practices, even demands of the mass movement as a way of preventing it from uh, getting to the point where it could actually change uh, the structure. And so that's one kind of phenomenon that I'm talking about. But depoliticization is a, is a kind of, it's, it's something that's a little harder to pin down in this way. It's about to, to what extent do we think it's possible to have that revolutionary politics that we were describing Noel Ignatiev as having and that existed for this long period. And like you said, it's so it's hard to imagine that now. And uh, why is that? I think, you know, there are a couple of ways that depoliticization happens. Uh, one is when I, I spoke about the crisis that was faced by the civil rights movement. There was, I wouldn't say that was a moment of depoliticization at all, but we, we constantly encounter these crises when we don't know uh, what way we should organize, what strategies we should have that really respond to the situation we're in. And that is a kind of, uh, that, that crisis situation is one in which it's possible for politics to kind of evaporate, you know, and then, and then uh, everything gets led back to the state, everything gets led back to interpersonal relations, and you don't have uh, movement, basically. And that's one, that's one aspect of it. And the other, the other side of it, I would say, is that throughout the 20th century, we had concrete visions of totally overturning the existing societies, the existing powers, and in, in the revolutions that took place all over the world for the whole 20th century. And these revolutions failed in all kinds of different ways. You know, they, they, they failed to achieve a really emancipated society or they simply were overturned once again and replaced with uh, a, a, a re repetition of the old order. Um, and 
that is something that we have a very hard time relating to because we, you know we we can one one temptation is to say okay that was all a mistake <laughs> you know we don't it's like <laughs> yeah. that, that that was all it was going the wrong way or, or we or we can like get basically a kind of larping thing in which we say yeah we're just going to do that again you know which is equally uh fantastical um so we have we have to have this a difficult relationship where we understand that something new was achieved and it did not succeed in carrying through what it what its potential and i think because of that we don't we don't believe now that it's possible to change the world we don't believe that it's possible that we could actually overthrow a state which happened, you know, more times than we can count in the 20th century. Who thinks we can do that now? You know, the 30 people in the the, you know, revolutionary workers communist uh league marxist yeah, yeah, yeah. Leninist, or whatever. The, they're down you know, the street from I, me. I, I'm uh, putting all the get, yeah. Yeah, they, if you they go believe in the bookstore. Yeah. They'll tell you uh they'll, they'll hand you Bob Avakian's book and Exactly. You know, they'll say let's let's overthrow all this, right? I, I was trying to put in yeah. more words so I didn't name an actual yeah. party, but right, I probably right, yeah. did end up naming an actual <laughs> yeah, party. Yeah. Uh but that's, you know, so so that's denial. You know, it's just denial about fact that actually the challenge is truly great and that's why it's hard to imagine it uh it's not hard to imagine it just because of our failings but because this is you know you have the most powerful uh, uh military uh kind of force that could possibly be exerted if you know this so so this is a serious i i don't know i don't know the solution nobody knows how to solve that um, yeah, yeah. It's, so. I, I think about it in the in the context of Korea, right? Because I went to those, like, uh, I went to the, you know, I went to some of those protests in Seoul where like a million people are out in the street and they eventually get the daughter of the former dictator to step down, but then they just sort of replace her with, you know, yeah. what is essentially Barack Obama, right? Like sort of, uh, or Joe Biden or something like that. But it's not like Koreans were at the at those protests were really calling for, you know, like a, for a complete overthrow of the society. They just wanted that person out. And, you know, there was another part of it that was about sort of class and career, but it's not like the, it's not like Hyundai and Samsung are challenging any sort of, you know, uh, the sort of corporations that run that country are, are challenged in any sort of meaningful way by this new government. You know, it's sort of incremental, but, um, but just the spectacle of it, you know, and uh, I was wondering if it, you know, I was like, well, maybe, maybe the spectacle of it is is something that will get people to change their their worldview of it. But I, I agree with you overall. It's just like I don't think that people really think of themselves as uh, as like the world could possibly be any different. I mean, does that does, does your sort of does your sort of uh, I don't know I don't know what the correct word is, but does your sort of skepticism towards that does that also extend to like you know like sort of Barney left? Do you think that they also are not that they that they also are incapable of imagining changing the world? Oh, that's that's a great question. I mean, that's I think that's what Noel was thinking about, you right. know, um, from his vantage point, and that y- you you can see now what's healthy about skepticism because I I didn't I I I think many people went too far with skepticism because you have to also understand that. Um, we're starting from a very low point in American politics. And this was a big deal that you could talk about socialism on TV and that somebody who says 
who uses the word socialist, he may not be talking about abolishing private property, okay, but using the word socialist and getting so many people to vote for him, that's a big deal. Um, and so I, you know, I, I didn't think that we could go all the way with skepticism. We had to recognize that we don't choose, you know, like Donald Rumsfeld said, you go to war with the army you have. So you need to think about the conditions. You don't choose the battlefield. Gramsci says that, so I quoted <laughs> both versions. <laughs> so the uh, so that so yeah, but 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 what happened now? I mean, you know, look when you when you enter into the 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 arena that is built by the capitalist state, you will always be on the defensive. You will always be. Um, uh, you will always be in the in the lower position. You will always have obstacles that um, are ultimately going to be insurmountable. In the sense that you know, it's not. Of course, it's possible for socialists to get elected, like Allende. So you know, that's the kind of risk that you face. You know, and and that's you know, people at that time, like in Europe, like communist parties in Europe, were like. Damn! Like we, you know, if we get elected, this this could like if this thing happens here, this you know. The, the, so then they 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 start thinking about what are we going to do about what, what strategy can we have, and um, so now we've seen the way that the state was able to neutralize this. You know, they they were able to neutralize what was oppositional about Bernie and the support for Bernie, and if you had gone all in and just believed President Bernie is going to bring socialism and I believe, you know, that uh, everyone's going to vote, the, you know, they're going to vote the right way and uh, we can use this system to change the system. If you believe all that, you're fucking depressed now. You know, what do you, you know, it's like that you, you, when you can't, maintain a political stability if you have illusions like that. So you need skepticism as well. You need to recognize like, okay, there are serious limits on what can be achieved with something like this. And then when it fails, and it will fail, you know, nine times out of ten at a minimum. You know, that's just the, that's just the way this works when you have these politics. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta know what to do when you fail, and that's a, that's a that's a big issue. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that you know there was you know I, I always when I would think about like you know I don't know after after Noel passed I would think about you know I was like well in some ways it's very comfortable to always just be like I'm waiting for the revolution you know like um, yeah. and so there is some of uh, you know there is sort of because he would always just be like I failed at you know not not in terms of his life but being like you know I try and tell people these ideas and usually don't listen you know and um and he had he he would say it in a good humored way right not in a depressed way just being like this is the life that I've chosen but um but then I was just like it also is not really failing ever right like cuz it's never like the the thing that you're calling for you know is not going to most likely happen in your lifetime even if you try and make it happen the whole time and so maybe there's like some some comfort in that as well and you know I, I think that would but then I don't know I also understood that uh you know I understood where he was coming from in this idea that uh like well and I think that you know a lot of the left is dealing with this now it's just like okay Bernie lost now now what happens right 
It's yeah. like, well, some people go into these endless litigations about the place of wokeness within leftist politics, right? And some people completely drop out. And then some people yeah. join DSA and have endless conversations about the place of wokeness in left politics. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, I don't know, there's, there's actually there's something I wanted to ask you because it was in the book and you're t you talk about the weatherman, right? And you talk yeah. about how like the, the weatherman had sort of... Um, basically said that like we should not think about the white working class right yeah. like that that the white working class also uh benefits from imperialism and what all that matters is sort of this revolutionary lifestyle that 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 um and sort of living this revolutionary lifestyle and you know it wasn't just a weatherman i think actually a lot of the malice that were come came out of the third world liberation front like they also sort of felt that way they're like well all i care about is like sort of uh being you know wearing the stuff that I wear and sort of being a revolutionary at all times. Uh, and I, when I read that, I was like, well, where is that today? You know, cause mm -hmm. is it, is it sort of like this, like, is it like, is that like what the dirtbag left is? Do you think like, you know, like, <laughs> <What dirt bag>? <laughs> <laughs> like uh, where, where so much of it does seem to be about, you know, like having this stance, right? Like it's not right. necessarily, um, obviously they're not, you know, blowing up banks and stuff like that, right? But yeah. that where where there's sort of an aesthetic attached to it, right? And that the thing that matters is the aesthetic. Like, I don't know, yeah. it's like totally out of left field thing. But I want to like, where, <laughs> where who, who are the, who are like the weathermen and the, like the IWK right now? Right. Uh, I don't. I mean, in the book, I suggest that you know, I mean, this writing off of the white working class is something that was, you know, and Noel harshly criticized the, the Weatherman for this. It's a great piece you'll find, find online. Uh, I think it's called... Yeah, you don't need a Weatherman to know which way the wind blows. That's the, we that's right, the, right, that's yeah. the Weatherman manifesto. His response yeah. is, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. is, without a science of navigation, we cannot sail in stormy seas. Right, right, right. So, right, yeah, right, that's yeah, the yeah, thing yeah, to yeah, look yeah, at. Yeah. And so, you know, it's so one thing is like writing off the white working class. Well, we, we can get into what's wrong with that. But um, another thing is that it's just a completely um, condescending romanticization of the third world and of these movements, which, you know, first of all, just turned them into pure images right. so that, that, you know, like that they could has some cathartic value rather than being actual people who have to engage in difficult political processes and may make serious mistakes as frequently happened in these movements <laughs> uh, yeah. which should be pointed out if you if you want to if you want to succeed you don't want to just and actually this is a problem in the history of revolutionary politics when people don't point out the mistakes bad things have happened. So that's, you know, that's one problem I see with that. And then, you know, the, with the white working class, it's like, you know, you, you want to change the society. You, it's like we were saying with protests. It's, you want people to not show up to your protests. Right. You, you, want the, you, you want white workers to not start thinking that we should, we should bring an end to racism. I mean, why, why, why would you take that position? <laughs> Say like these, like somebody voted for Trump. So I don't want to convince this person to now become, uh, 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 you know, uh, to, to, to now change their politics. Why that's, is a totally illogical position. And, uh, I was just reading, you know, um, this, uh, I'm reviewing 
these selected writings of Stuart Hall, you know, and he, he was, sure. he's a big influence. I, I write about some aspects of his work uh, in the book, but there's a lot that I didn't get into, which is very important. And, and there's a really good uh, introduction to it by Paul Gilroy. If you look uh, on the website of Duke that published it, you can read it, and I recommend looking at that. And, he, you know, he quotes, uh, Stuart Hall was doing a training with um, uh, high school teachers, I think, uh, of anti-racist educators and he said you don't want to have basically you don't want to have safe spaces basically you don't want to have a space in which people are afraid to say what they actually think because if people are coming in with racist ideas they need to come to the surface they need to come out you can't have people just sitting there letting them simmer inside their brains and right. just, you know, make them feel like there's, there's this yeah woke world or whatever that, I you know, is just, you know, not going to speak to me. And you, you, want, you want this to come to the surface. You want it to be worked through and you want people to change, you know, and uh, people, people have recognized that historically, you know, people have recognized this and it's become like a, 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 a very uh, unfavorable, uh, 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 it's like you can't take this position now, but it, that's, that's a really reasonable position if you want to actually change these things right. that we're yeah. complaining about. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I, I find that like the, I, I completely agree with all of that. And, you know, it's why, um, I, you know, generally try to be somewhat skeptical about, uh, you know, like cancel culture and stuff like that. Right. Like where I think, and, try and uh, to whatever extent I can just be like, well, people should just say what they mean, right? And we shouldn't have this sort of punitive environment around it. And, you know, look, again, we don't have to talk about this all the time, but, like, it's just sort of like, it does seem like the other champions of that and why I'm somewhat reticent to say all this stuff are just people who just want minorities to shut up, you know? Right. And and, right. and that's like, you know, and those two have been mixed together so much at this point, and the people right. who want that are so toxic and so big, right? That like any sort of intervention, I, you know, I was talking to, a, to somebody I know about this who, you know, who's written about this sort of stuff a lot and who, you know, has a very good position, has done a ton of work. And I was just like, you know, when like you and I say stuff like, you know, like uh, talk about like sort of this cynical identity politics or we talk about, uh, you know, the need for like better forms of expression and, um, nobody listens to us, you know, and he's not white either, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like, like, I would think that like, given the, the, the way that things are, are, are sort of structured right now, that the people who, uh, you know, the white people who are going on and on about this would actually want somebody who looks like me to come up and say something similar, you know, but they actually no, don't yeah. just, like really <laughs> cut out of the same conversation. Yeah. I was like, look, I'll be your token, you know, but, yeah. but they don't even take me up on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, um, all right. So the last thing I wanted to talk about with you here was like, uh, and this is from a piece you wrote in Sag Anthology. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Sag yeah, Anthology. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to read from it. It's just that I've been reminded that struggles founded on class can also be neutralized, as the history of the workers' movement makes clear. It seems to me now that an emancipation is foreclosed by any foundation, whether quote identitarian or quote materialist, and that the axes of political struggle cannot be aligned. By an, or by an empiricist social analysis, but only from the vantage point of emancipation. Like, uh, where did that come from? Like, you yeah, know, like, well, like what, what moment did that come from? So that, that has a lot to do with the debates that came up after the book 
And a lot of people said, you know, um, okay, it's about race and class, but you didn't explain what is the relationship between race and class. Explain this. And, and I thought about it, and I thought, okay, I, I didn't do that. I talked about movements that, you know, dealt with race and class, um, but I didn't present a theory of how they're, like, uh, how they're socially interrelated or something like that. And that's something that people really want right now. You know, and you hear these uh, terms like racial capitalism and so on being used. And so why do people want that so much? It's, I think it's because there's this basic impulse, you know, it's there in Marxism, it's there in many other uh, ways of thinking, that once you figure out how everything is related objectively, then you'll have the right politics. And then that, that's, that's one way of conceiving it. But, <laughs> right, but, then, right. but then it goes the other way in the sense that, okay, we, we're against racism, but we also believe in class struggle. So there has to be some way that there's a theory about how these are necessarily related, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like necessarily, you know, the language of necessity, uh, you know, just like what, what do we really mean when we say something like that? It's like if we were to construct a new earth and like create a new human history, would we be able to design, uh, you know, a society in which there was class but not race? I mean, that that's a nonsense question. So you should not answer that question. You know, you, you should not generate a theory based on a ridiculous premise of that kind. Right. So we, right. we can't make these claims about necessity. So part of what I was saying at that point was, okay, this is theoretically the wrong question in, in the way that you want to understand society. But even if we have a better way, having a better way of understanding the social structure, of analyzing the society... That's good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a politics that is about emancipation. You may have this analysis, but the politics is always going to be a step that isn't just set up for you by that analysis. You, there has to be a point in which people are able to collectively state and act on the premise that we can do something different. We can, ch and I quote this interesting uh, philosopher, you know, the, the basic political statement is, let's do something about the situation. And that, that doesn't just come from understanding the situation. You can understand it all you want. Eventually, you have to just make that leap of saying, we're going to do something about it. And so, uh, you know, to make, it, to make the point uh, less um, dramatically, uh, the, what, what I thought about the book was, you know, I basically identified the neutralization of class in identity politics, neutralization of the anti-racist movements, as a kind of phenomenon which, when class was pushed out of the political picture, then these movements were not, this politics was no longer emancipatory. Now, that might imply that class is equal to emancipatory politics. But that also, you look at histories, that is not necessarily true. Because, you know, there can be, uh, as Noel Ignatiev also wrote about, you can have, you know, labor bureaucracies, you can have social democratic politicians that are going to claim to represent the working class, but that that's not what they're going to do. That, you know, and they're, they're, they're going to be 
when they get into power, they have frequently acted as obstacles to socialism. It's happened time and time again. Uh, and so uh, the, the idea that just adding class back will result in an emancipatory politics, that doesn't work. And we know from this, you know, the, the, the online people you describe who actually really don't want to hear minorities talk and they say they're all about class maybe even they say they're class reductionists but that just means you know they they want to harass people and they want to elect bernie maybe now they don't want to elect bernie maybe bernie got too woke for them i don't even know i'm not <laughs> yeah. following i'm not up to date yeah. on that yeah. whole thing but just talking about class doesn't mean you got emancipatory politics so right, this, my right. my way of thinking now is we have to start there. We have to start with say, saying, you know, we we want a society which in which people govern themselves and people are equal. And we start from that. And then we figure out what is the situation and how are we going to change it? Uh, how are we going to move towards that? Where, where does, like, you know, how, how does that... Um you know, the, the, I think, how does solidarity work in that, right? Because I think the class reductionists would basically argue that, like, bringing identity and race into it is anathema to solidarity, right? That actually the only way to do what Ignatiev said, where both sides forget what race they are and rise up against management, is to just never talk about race at all, right? Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, I, I just find this, in, like, it, it's the thing that I think about the most, I would say, is, like, you know, like, how do you build solidarity? And, you know, it's, it's just a product of having spent all that time in those protests. Okay, well, so, I mean, when you talk about um, the Panthers, things like that, one answer that people have had is that, okay, there's separatism and then there's an idea of like having some kind of autonomy to overcome the fact that there are barriers to solidarity already right. and those are imposed by these racial divisions and you need to deal with those you don't you can't wish them away you need to deal with them and then you can have solidarity so that's so i mean that's one argument does that apply in the present i'm i'm not sure uh it's it's not like i don't think we can make general rules about things like that um I think that, you know, you you said what comes after, let's do something about the situation. But I think it, it's, not, it's not what comes after that. It's that you only have solidarity when you have that, and we don't have that. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's the thing. True. Because yeah. the, idea, like, the idea that, like, we're going to have solidarity just because we're all together and we're all, you know, maybe we, maybe we have, like, um, common, like, maybe we all think that, uh, we're united in outrage at the a police murder. Maybe we have some things that link us together, uh, even though we have all these different perspectives and ideologies. I, I don't think that's enough to constitute the kind of solidarity that you're talking about, because there has to be, let's do something about the situation. It has to not just be, we're going to go out in the street, but we're, but it's the point where we say like, uh, we are going to break with what we have now, with what exists, and we're going to try to think about and implement something that's totally different. And I, I think that that's the missing element. And when you look at the Panthers, you know, you look at Huey Newton or whatever, you, you look at, you, if you, you know, you don't want to, th you, you can look at any example. This was a basic assumption that you go into this, you make decisions about 
Are you going to have autonomous organizing? How are you going to build solidarity? You make those decisions based on the underlying revolutionary commitment that they had. Right, right. And that's why, you know, the, 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 the views evolve in these interesting ways. And Huey Newton, you know, he comes up with this very unusual theory about nations and nationalism. Uh, you know, call it, he called it intercommunalism. But the, the, the more interesting way, if people want to look it up, you look up his letter to the National Liberation Front, you know, the Vietnamese mm -hmm. National Liberation Front, which he sets out this view. He's like, you know, we're, our goal actually is to um, get rid of nations. So, you know, the, we're, in this sense, we're not nationalist na anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, so so the, the, that's that process. Um, and you have to have that, you, you know, what, what in, in, the, in the piece that you quoted, it's, as a subjective break you, you, you can have a social movement but you don't have politics until you have the subjective break when people are able to stay together we're going to bring this to an end and we're going to have something else and that's yeah. what's so out of reach now yeah yeah no it feels I don't know it feels total, I mean you know I think about this in terms of um, you know like well because it's like how do you uh you know, like, how do you end uh, what's been happening? Actually, you know, we don't even have to. I, I think it's a good time to end, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're, we've been going an hour 40, so yeah, let's yeah. just end there. Yeah, good. that was a good ending that you did there. Asad, so. yeah. um, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, um, you know, we do this a couple times a week or once a week. It just depends on the week, I guess. And, um, you know, this is the type of stuff that I would love to do on the show more. You yeah. know, like just sort of these long conversations and um you can if you're listening you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on twitter please support the patreon aside do you have anything you want to plug or or like a way for you know like is there like a twitter or something like that that you want people to just yeah, check I know that out you're not very big on twitter so, no just, um, just just check out viewpoint um you know and I, I have this book if you if you want to if you want to read yeah it. yeah the book is through Verso um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I don't really yeah it's yeah. Uh, I don't know it was it was I've told you this before but it was one of the you know I read it and I was like okay I immediately have to you know figure out who this person is because uh, you know it felt totally new to me and um, it was outside of the you know these litigations of identity politics that have been so exhausting to me and um, seemed to promise something better so you know. Please go out and read it. Um, all right, Sad, thanks for uh, coming on the show. All right, thanks. Gracias.